This is They Create Worlds, episode 156, Madden for some football. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we have to get ready to play a game, Alex. A sports ball game. One that is beloved by many Americans. Though I don't know which color we're cheering for yet. Dodgeball? Oh, I did hear dodgeball is a wonderful game. Involving dodging a ball that kits you violently and, I guess, leads to many people... In school, going to the nurse's office for various degrees of injuries. (laughs) So, yes, we're talking about dodgeball today. If you can dodge a video game, you can dodge a ball, Jeff. Ooh. True story. That means I need to get all of these old Nintendo cartridges and just start loading them up into an ultra machine thing. That will (laughs) lead to me practicing properly for dodgeball. Sure. We'll go with that as long as you promise not to hold me liable. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> no, of course, we are talking today about hand egg ball, which most people know as football, and which Europeans know as that dumb American game that stole the name for our game. It's complicated. But anyway, it's Super Bowl season around here. Of course, by the time this episode airs, the uh, Super Bowl will have happened, but it hasn't happened yet at the time we're recording. Of course, the legendary coach and broadcaster, uh, John Madden, has also uh, just recently passed away. So it seemed like a great time to honor the Madden legacy and really dig deep into the beginnings of John Madden football and the Madden football franchise, which at this point is one of the most iconic, most widely played video game franchises in existence and is certainly the most iconic and widely played sports franchise in existence. A game series that is not just played by hardcore gamers, but it's also played by plenty of sports fans that don't touch any other video games at all. And it's played by NFL players and NFL hopefuls. I mean, Madden has become so embedded into the football lifestyle that it is one of those video game series that transcends just games and gaming and has become in the United States a true pop culture phenomenon. Now, didn't we already talk about Madden football before? I remember something about EA Sports talking about Madden football on the Apple II and how much of a disaster that was from a development standpoint. It wasn't until the game was sort of revamped for the Sega that that really established Madden as a staple, and then it really launched EA Sports and Madden itself. Right. So we talked about Madden before in the context of EA Sports. Obviously, at that time, we did go a little bit into the development of the game and the history of the game as well, but it was all in service to the wider story of EA Sports, which, of course, Madden plays an instrumental role in. What we're going to do today is leave, for the most part, all of that EA Sports stuff aside and just do a really, really deep dive into Madden football itself. This episode will be different for a couple of reasons from what we did before, even though there's inevitably some overlap. 
first of all, it will be a deeper dive. We're just going to go into a little more depth on everything surrounding it. In that sense, there'll be more. But also, as is always the case, I'm always doing research. I'm always learning new things. I've mined a few more sources since the last time we talked about it. So there's new ways even of talking about some of the old things that we had already gone over. As we say often these days when doing the podcast, it's getting harder and harder to do an episode that does not in any way overlap with other things we've already done, just because we've done nearly 160 of these bloody things. But this will be looking at it from a different angle than we did in in our EA Sports episode, and then when we kind of did an update of EA Sports stuff, we've kind of covered it a couple of different times. But third time will be different. Okay, so if that's the case, let's start all the way back at the beginning. We know that the first game involving the name came out on the Apple II. What's sort of the run-up to the people going, you know, I really want to do a football game because, hey, I like football, and let's put it on the Apple II because, obviously, that is the best gaming system ever. (laughs) Right. The story of John Madden football is really the story of Electronic Arts. Yes, I know, that is something else we have also covered in multiple episodes. We're bringing it all together in a slightly different way this time, I promise. Trip Hawkins, the founder of Electronic Arts, is a humongous sports fan. He is a humongous football fan. That DNA of sports games and football games has been a part of his professional career even before Electronic Arts, as he tells the story when he was younger, when he was a kid, essentially, he was an avid player of Stratomatic football, and he tried his hand at creating his own football game. We talked about this in some of our origins of uh, Electronic Arts episodes. He borrowed some money. He put this game out, board game, obviously, not a computer game. Didn't really sell anything. I mean, it never went anywhere. But making a football game was a part of the DNA of what Trip Hawkins wanted to do even before he had established EA, even before he got into computers. So it's only natural that from the very beginning of the founding of Electronic Arts, Trip Hawkins was looking to do a football game. He wasn't looking to do an action football game. That's something that we have to really kind of hone in on, and I'm sure we honed in on it some when we talked about all of this before, but we really need to hone in on it now. What he was talking about is not a game of high action as the top priority. When you think of Madden today and the Madden franchise, there's obviously depth there, but its modern roots are in a more arcadey, action-y style, where the depth is layered in on top of the football action. This is not what Trip Hawkins was particularly interested in when he was first going to make a football game. He was a Stratomatic player, like I said. He was into the statistics. He was into the strategy. He was into how the plays worked and how everything interacted with each other. And that was kind of his prime focus. That's what made creating the original John Madden football an incredibly difficult prospect. He knew this is something he wanted to do from the beginning. The question just is, how do you get this together? We have to remember that Electronic Arts was not a company that employed its design talent in the beginning. That was the big founding principle of Electronic Arts, which we went into, so we don't have to go into depth again, is that they found and cultivated independent artistic talent, gave them the resources they needed to complete their projects, and then marketed and sold those products, and then gave the programmers and artists royalties 
on those products. Nobody was employed in-house. EA's early talent came from a lot of different places, but the main line that's important for us here is San Diego, California. San Diego was actually a bit of an early computing hotbed. There was a lot going on down there. There were a couple of coin-operated companies down there, Gremlin Industries and Cinematronics that we've mentioned before. There was some tech down there, so there were computer enthusiasts down there. It ended up being one of the early hubs for early Apple II video game design, and this was largely down to an individual by the name of Jim Nichols. I'm sure we've probably mentioned Jim before, but we haven't talked about him very much on the program because he was more of a behind-the-scenes guy than he was actually making games. Very instrumental in some of the reverse engineering that Electronic Arts did to get them on consoles in the late 80s, early 90s. His EA career was mostly that behind-the-scenes stuff. But before he got involved with EA, and the reason that he came to the attention of EA in the first place is... He ended up establishing a company when he was just out of high school with two of his friends, Richard Moore and Barry Prince, by the name of Cavalier Software. Through that company, he created some early kind of arcade ripoffs for the Apple II. He was a bedroom coder. The bedroom coder movement was a movement that was not nearly as strong in the United States, I think, as it was in Europe and in Great Britain. For a variety of reasons, I think mostly because without that drive that you had with the BBC Micro in the national school system in Europe and without the really, really cheap computers in the beginning, like the ZX80, the ZX81, and the ZX Spectrum, it tended to be slightly older people in the United States that were getting into these personal computers early on, people that were perhaps already in college and were exposed to computing through time-sharing and networked computers in that capacity, or young professionals who were in the computer or in the defense industries that had access to these computers. There were bedroom coders, but it feels like it was less of a movement in the United States than it was in Europe. Jim Nichols was an exception to this. He was the quintessential bedroom coder. He discovered computers in school. He got an Apple II from his parents. He was fooling around. He started making arcade knockoffs. But then he took the next step to become an entrepreneur with his friends and founded Cavalier. And at Cavalier, he recruited other people that went to his high school. He had graduated, but he went back and was recruiting other programmers from his high school who were also interested in this kind of stuff. One of those was an individual by the name of Mike Abbott, who would go on to do Hard Hat Mac for Electronic Arts. Another was Eric Hammond, who also would become a key important figure in the Electronic Arts story. So why am I bringing all of these people up? It's because actually, even though Trip Hawkins wanted to do a football game, the program came independently. And it came out of this San Diego Connect. Cavalier Software created a few games. They kind of petered out. The talent started leaving. By the end of 1982, they were basically washed up. They didn't have any super huge hits. I mean, it's not a company that resonates anymore today, but they were half-decently successful. After that company started kind of breaking away, Eric Hammond ended up working with Another company by the name of Datatrek, which was also another small computer game company located in the San Diego area. This company was founded 
or at least led by, it's all a little murky. I wish I had more information on kind of this little corner of computer game history, but it was founded by or led by an individual by the name of Robin Antonick. Robin Antonick had actually been a college football player, not at a big Division I NCAA school. It was at a small school in Illinois called Principia College. He was a football player, and he was a computer nerd. So he founded or led, like I said, I'm not sure if he was the founder or not, this Datatrek company that Eric Hammond worked with. On the side, he started fiddling around with creating a football game because Robin himself was distressed at the state of the early, early football games. We're talking about things like Atari's football in the arcade or the early console games that were available on the Atari 2600 or on the Intellivision, that kind of stuff. And a couple of really early examples on computer platforms as well. SSI did one called Computer Quarterback. None of these games actually depicted the sport of football in any meaningful way. Football is a game primarily of 11 on 11. That's a lot of objects to be moving around. 22 players plus a ball is a lot of stuff to be moving around on a computer. Let alone if you do anything extra, like referees on the side, an audience, snow. Right, and you couldn't get anywhere near any of that. And everything's moving at once. So some of the early, say, baseball games could get away with showing a full baseball team on the field because even though you have nine players in the field plus the batter at the plate, only two or three, maybe four of those need to move at any one time. You can kind of fake it. Football, you can't fake it. Everybody on that field is moving. So, of course, it was impossible on these early systems to depict football in any meaningful way. You had two choices. You could depict it with three players on a side or five players on a side, something like that, and do a scaled-down version of football. Or you could make it entirely a strategy game, not worry about graphics at all, and just maybe represent everybody with little X's and O's that move slowly around the screen. You know, you could do strategy, you could do action, but the more strategy you did, the less action you had, the more action you had, the less realism or strategy you had because you just had to scale it down. There was really nothing good out there. Robin, being both a computer programmer and a football player himself, decided that he wanted to do something about that. So he decided to start tinkering around with a football program at Datatrack. Nobody there was really interested in what he was doing. I think really, especially in the early days, the intersection between hardcore sports enthusiasts and hardcore game enthusiasts was a pretty darn small Venn diagram. They existed, obviously. They still exist today. But your average hardcore computer game player that was into the arcade games, was into the space shooters, was into all that stuff going on, wasn't necessarily interested in sports or football. Or if they were somewhat casually interested, they weren't really interested in getting in-depth in there and actually making something and selling something that depicted one of these sports in a meaningful way. He was working on this thing, but his colleagues just really didn't want to have anything to do with it. So it didn't really seem like it was going to go anywhere. Meanwhile, Jim Nichols, bringing him back into the story here, gets a contract with Electronic Arts, one of the early contracts with Electronic Arts to make games. Because as we talked about in our Electronic Arts episode, 
since this was going to be a company that was going to be artist-driven, the very first thing that Trip Hawkins did once he got his core team of marketing people and producers together was basically go out and start trying to source some of the best already existing talent so there would be a solid base with which to launch this company. That's why Bill Budge is involved, who's a superstar of the Apple II community at this time. That's why they go after John Freeman and Ann Westfall, because they have a track record from automated simulations. They're wanting to discover unknown talent as well, but they know they need a base of really competent talent to get going. So, of course, Jim Nichols, because Cavalier, even though it's not a big company, it's a company that's had a little bit of success on the Apple II. These are young guys that clearly know what they're doing, but could maybe use the help in terms of marketing the product because they haven't been all that big. Jim Nichols comes on board, and then Jim Nichols starts introducing Electronic Arts to all of his buddies. So that's how Mike Abbott ends up coming in and doing Hard Hat Mac as one of the launch titles. Of course, we talked about those launch titles. We gave him a whole episode. I didn't quite realize all of this connection at that time. So actually, in that episode, we didn't kind of go into this Jim Nichols connection. So that's a bit of new information. But other than that, you can look at our six games of EA episode or whatever we called it to get more detail on Hard Hat Mac and what's going on there. He also introduces them to Eric Hammond. When Eric Hammond comes in, Trip Hawkins basically wants him to do a football game. Because he's looking for a programmer. You know, Eric Hammond doesn't necessarily have a project ready to go, but he's looking for a programmer to do this football game. And Eric Hammond says, no, I don't want to do that because he was not interested in football. So he's like, well, I'll do basketball instead. That was the birth of the one-on-one project, Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one, which we talked about in our EA episode. We're not going to talk about here, but we're just establishing the connections. But that just goes to show that football was already... As early as 1982 or early 1983 was already very much on Trip Hawkins' mind. He wanted to do a football game. Eric Hammond doesn't want to do this football game, but Eric Hammond has connections with Robin Antonick. And this is a part of the story that I don't have fully formed. It would be nice to be able to talk to Robin or Eric and get more of the details here. I do know that Eric Hammond did a game for Data Trek a game called uh, Maze Craze Construction Set that was released in 1983. I also know that Eric's, I think, brother, pretty sure he's a brother, but anyway, he's a relation, Greg Hammond, worked for Data Trek. So Eric Hammond also knew the Data Trek people. Eric Hammond knew Robin Antonick, and presumably Eric Hammond knew that Robin Antonick was working on a football game. So Eric Hammond becomes the link that introduces Robin Antonick to Electronic Arts. I don't know exactly how that went down, but I imagine, and this is speculation, I want to make that very clear, but I imagine Eric Hammond knew that Electronic Arts was wanting to do a football game because they asked him to do it. Eric Hammond knew that Robin Antonick was working on a football game and kind of served as the go-between to get these guys together. So in 1983, Robin Antonick comes in to Electronic Arts and pitches them on doing a football game. He'd already started work on it. He he didn't have a fully functioning game, but he kind of had a basic shape to it. His goal, as I said, was to do something that depicted the action of real football, 11-on-11 football, none of this 3-by-3, 5-by-5, whatever else you want to call it stuff. Something that was also actually based on 
some degree to individual player ability and reflected the action going on on the field. Because the other thing about a lot of these early games is that they were largely predetermined. And again, it's because of the complexity of this stuff on very early computers. You not only have to keep track of 22 objects at the same time that are all moving, but you have to calculate out the interactions between these objects because it's football. It's a contact sport. Not only are these objects moving, they're colliding with each other, quite literally. It's a lot to keep track of. So even the games that were using 3x3, 5x5, etc., a lot of them relied on stock canned plays. You would choose your play from a very small playbook. It would never be a very big playbook at the beginning. That playbook would dictate how most of the play would turn out. And you may have a little bit of a control over one player on the field as this is going on. But your amount of control over what could actually occur after the play was chosen was actually relatively small just because of the programming complexity of it. So that's the other thing he wanted to overcome. He wanted 11 on 11 football, and he wanted individual actors and the individual control of players on the field to have some kind of impact on the final result of a play. Now, you're saying that the plays are predetermined. Does that mean that each play is almost like a rock, paper, scissors thing? Like you choose a play, the opposing computer chooses a play, and a rock, paper, scissors thing plays out to determine that, oh, you picked rock, he picked paper, he wins. Yeah, to a large degree. Like I said, you did have some control over an individual player, so you could alter the fate a little bit. But yes, that's a lot of what was going on in these early games is a rock, paper, scissors kind of format, as you say, where the plays that offense and defense chose would go a long way to determining how things would play out. Obviously, how each side chooses to play is a big part of football. But the problem is, you know, in in real football, all sorts of things happen. Plays go wrong, or even though you call a play and the other player calls the wrong defense because they have this one really great player, you know, this player manages to correct and come through and salvage it. You know, there's a lot that happens. It's it's like war. I mean, football and war are so very similar, as, as George Carlin likes to tell us in his famous stand-up routine. It's very much like a war, and so you make your plan, but all bets in a way are off once you make first contact with the enemy, and then your plan only gets you so far, and individual performance goes a long way to determining how things turn out. You know, it's the same in football, but there was less of that in the early football games on computers and whatnot just because that was so much to keep track of. So this is an ambitious project. We have to remember at the time, the typical Apple II computer, you could expand it more, but the typical Apple II computer was about 48K. Of RAM. Yes, 48K of RAM, sorry. That was the memory size. That's all you had to do all of this stuff. As Joey Barrow, who was the producer on the original John Madden Football, likes to say, the goal was basically to model all of the complexity of football on a machine with less memory than your watch today. Yeah, that doesn't sound like an easy task to do. It's not. If it's even possible at all. Exactly. But that was Antonik's ambition. He was very ambitious, and this dovetailed with Tripp's desire to do the game. So they signed a deal. In October 1983, Robin Antonik was signed to a deal to create an 11-on-11 football game that modeled all of the rules of football. That was specified in the contract. Some of you that maybe you've listened to our other episodes or from other sources know the Madden story, at this point, I'm like, wait a minute, that's not the Madden football story. 
the Madden football story is that Electronic Arts is making this seven-on-seven football game, and they show it to John Madden, and John Madden is outraged because it's not real football. And he says, if it's not 11-on-11, it's not real football, and I will not put my name on that. I recall hearing that at some point. It's a famous story. It's in all the tellings of the creation of John Madden. And John Madden himself tells the story. So John Madden, who was theoretically there, also told the story this way. But here we are at the beginning of the project, and there is no John Madden in October 1983. At the very beginning of this project, the contract for the game, which was revealed because Robin Antonick actually uh, sued Electronic Arts a few years ago over the Madden franchise and what he thought were royalties that he deserved from future games in the series. Because of that, a lot of this stuff has come out, and that's how we know about the contract. The original contract, before Madden was ever in the picture, stipulates it will be 11-on-11 football. The story, the big famous story and turning point, is not true. Or at least, it's not entirely true. It's apocryphal. It's not entirely apocryphal, probably. So I have talked to Joe Ibarra, who was the first producer on the game. Well, I guess in a way, Trip Hawkins was the first producer on the game. Joe Ibarra did not want to do John Madden football. But Joe Ibarra was probably the most accomplished of the first group of producers at Electronic Arts. He was a chess player, a really good chess player, and a very big strategy game fan before he ever came to Electronic Arts. He was actually connected to Electronic Arts through Joel Billings, the founder of SSI, because he was playing all of SSI's war games, these complex military simulations. And Joel Billings hooked him up with Trip Hawkins. He was kind of one of the most successful of the early producers. He was the producer on -on one-on-one basketball, which, of course, went on to be a massive, massive hit. He had a track record, and he was very good with the sports games already, obviously, because he'd done the basketball game with Eric Hammond. So he was bothered basically every day saying, you got to do the football game, you got to do the football game. And he did not want to. He could tell that this was going to be a massive, complicated, difficult project because Electronic Arts had gone through a period of difficulty right around here, which we talked about in our EA episode. He was involved in putting out fires in all sorts of projects. His hands were full with everything and he did not want to do a football game. But finally, (laughs) he was kind of forced into it and became the producer, though Trip Hawkins also maintained a very active interest himself in the product because this was his dream project for Electronic Arts doing a football game. So I talked to Joey Barr and I asked him about this. I asked him about the Madden story. The way he tells it, the game was always meant to be 11 on 11. His goal from the beginning was to do 11 on 11. And of course, as we know now, the contract backs him up because the actual contract says it was 11 on 11. Trip Hawkins, according to Joe, was really not sure they could pull it off. And it was Trip Hawkins that kept trying to pull them back and saying, well, maybe fewer, maybe fewer, maybe we should do fewer players. So there was an internal debate. So my guess is at some point they showed John Madden a prototype of the game in progress that was only seven on seven. That famous exchange probably did happen. I mean, sure, John Madden could be making it up too, but this is something that 
Trip Hawkins has told, and it's something that John Madden has told on his end. And of course, John Madden would have no idea about the intricacies of development. He only sees what they show him. He never saw the contract. He didn't know it was a contract for an 11-on-11 football game. So my guess is that they showed him a 7-on-7 prototype at one point, and he got irate about it and really did give that famous line about 11-on-11 football. My guess is that that turned into a point of no return for Trip. Trip was the one that was hedging. But I think once Madden said that, he probably felt that he couldn't hedge on it anymore. That's probably what got him to kind of stop trying to get Joe and Robin to cut back on what they were doing. I don't think it's probably entirely apocryphal, but we have to be clear that it was not Madden's direct intervention that led it to be an 11-on-11 football game. It was always going to be that. So if you take nothing else away from this episode, because we do like to, to bust a myth here and there as, as we put out these episodes, if you take nothing else away, just know that the original John Madden football was always intended to be an 11-on-11 football game, thanks to the ambition of Mr. Robin Antonick. Okay, so we've got a football game. Trip Hawkins is very interested and is keeping a close eye on it. Joey Barra has been lined up to produce it. Robin Antonick is starting to create it. Now we need a celebrity, right? Because we did Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one. It's a massive success. And the endorsements are really a part of why it's a massive success. I mean, just being a one-on-one basketball game, I don't think would have had the allure. I think the fact that it was these two premier players that were very different in playing style, but both very elite players, was kind of the appeal of the game to the general public. So we're doing a football game. We need to have a celebrity endorsement on this as well. Quarterbacks are the sexiest role in football. They are the commander. They're the field general right there in the middle, calling the shots, making the plays, driving down the field. The first logical place to go is to a quarterback. And the quarterback in the early 1980s is Joe Montana. No question. Tripp's first play is to go get Joe Montana. Well, Joe's not available. As Tripp tells it, he already had an endorsement deal of some kind with Atari. I've never been able to completely track that down. Obviously, there's no Joe Montana football for the Atari. There is a Joe Montana football, but that's a very different game from a very different time on a very different system. That was also based on the Madden engine, but that's (laughs) beside the point. So I don't know. I mean, this is right around the time of the crash. Were they going to do a game with Joe Montana? I, I don't know. I mean, they did license Pele for their soccer game. It was the very first time, to my knowledge, that an athlete had been licensed for a video game. Were they planning to do that? Maybe. Or maybe it was just more they wanted him to advertise. They were working on a new series of updated sports games for the 2600 and the 5200, their new system at that time. So maybe it's just that in order to promote real sports football, the football game they were working on, maybe they just signed Joe Montana to an endorsement deal. Maybe they planned to use him in commercials, and that was considered enough of a conflict of interest that he couldn't also be in Joe Montana football for electronic arts. Or maybe Tripp's wrong or misremembering, and it was something else. But whatever the reason, Joe Montana was unavailable. His next choice, as Tripp tells it, was Joe Cap, who had been a quarterback back in the day for the Vikings and was a well-known college football coach at the time. Joe Cap was willing to do it, 
But he wanted a big royalty and he wanted his name on the product and his picture on the box and all of this stuff. Trip, quite frankly, didn't think that he was a big enough get compared to what he was asking for. They'd have been massively overpaying. That was out the door, too. Now, those are the only two that Trip mentions that he approached. When I talked to Joey Barra, Joe said that they went to tons of people. He didn't name other names, but they went to tons of people that either turned them down or the deal wasn't good enough or whatever. The way he told it, John Madden was nowhere near the top of their picks. As they worked their way down the list, whether it was a list of three or a list of 15 or a list of 500, depends on who you talk to, they finally got around to John Madden. Either that or they got really desperate and they made some sort of deal with the devil and that's the source of the Madden curse. <laughs> right. John Madden today, and of course he did just pass away at the end of 2021, less than two months before this recording. John Madden today is probably more well known for his football game than anything else. Madden lives on because of John Madden football. I mean, just Madden football now, but <laughs> Madden football. And that name is so iconic, that brand is so iconic that it's doubtful that EA will change it anytime soon. So Madden will continue to live on as this icon. Back in 1983, 1984, 1984 really, when this deal is being made, John Madden is very well known, but he's something maybe quite not as larger than life than that. But he's already quite a character. John Madden was born in Minnesota, though they moved to San Francisco when he was young. He attended Jefferson High School, where he was a standout football star. He spent one season one at a local college, College of San Mateo, a small school. His performance there was enough to get him a scholarship at the University of Oregon. He was drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles in the 21st round, so not a high draft pick, but he was drafted in 1958 by the Philadelphia Eagles as an offensive lineman. Then in his first training camp, he injured his knee. Previously, he had already injured his other knee when he was a college player, and so those injuries together put the end to his football career. He never had a football career. But while he was rehabbing, he would watch as other players on the team were watching films and reviewing plays and figuring out strategy, and he kind of got himself a bit of an education in the way kind of football worked from a strategic perspective during that period of time. After football didn't work out as a player, he went to a small college, Allen Hancock College, in 1960 and became an assistant coach. Two years later, he became the head coach. Then the next year, he was hired at a much bigger school, San Diego State, as the defensive coach. And his experience there got him hired as a defensive coach with the Oakland Raiders in 1967. Very soon after that, in 1969, he became the head coach of the Raiders. Now, I'm not big into football, so I don't know a huge amount about football history, so I may get some of the nuance wrong, but the... Oakland Raiders of the late 60s and the 1970s, owned by Al Davis, were kind of known as the bad boys of first the AFL before the two leagues merged, and then of the NFL once the AFL and the NFL merged. They were kind of these rowdy, undisciplined upstarts who 
were very, very, very successful under Madden. They consistently placed atop the AFC West and consistently uh, won the AFC. It wasn't until the 1976 season, though in 1977, because of the way football works, that they actually won a Super Bowl, but they won uh, Super Bowl eleven in 1977 to cement the status of this kind of legendary team and a, of Madden as a legendary coach. So he was an absolutely legendary coach for his run with the Oakland Raiders. But it was killing him inside. It was very stressful, and he was suffering from ulcers and other health conditions. It just took a lot out of him to be a coach. So he decided to retire at the end of the uh, 1978 season. So in 1979, he retired as a coach. He ended up going into the broadcast booth, became a broadcaster. Teaming with Pat Summerall, he became an absolutely legendary broadcaster. He was known for his ability to explain complex football strategy in a way that made sense to the average person, to the average football fan. He was known for his enthusiasm and for his love of the game as well. So he's considered perhaps the best color commentator or analyst. Certainly, he's the best in all of football broadcasting history, but he may even have been the best in, in all of broadcasting history across all the major sports. So this is the person that Electronic Arts was getting when they finally decided to approach Madden. He was beginning to build his reputation as a broadcaster. He was still early in his broadcast career, but he was already building it. And he was already a legendary head coach, so many people already knew him for his stint at the Oakland Raiders. He really makes sense. It's kind of funny that he was so far down the list of choices. It really makes sense to have someone like John Madden be the poster child for this strategy-based Apple II game, because he was known for his great strategic mind as a coach, and he was known for his ability to dissect and interpret plays for the general public in the broadcast booth. So a game that's trying to go for football authenticity, football realism, like Electronic Arts football game was, of course John Madden is the perfect fit. But as I said, he wasn't the first choice. He wasn't the second choice. And if Joey Barr is correct, he may not have even been the 10th or 11th choice. But they end up signing him. This is more than just an endorsement deal. A lot of times you sign a player like Atari did with Pele, for instance, for their soccer game. And and all you're doing is putting their name on the product, maybe running a couple of commercials with them, maybe slap their picture on the box. You're banking on that name recognition to sell the product, but that's not what Trip Hawkins wanted to do, and that's not what Electronic Arts was built around. We've talked about this before, both with Madden and with one-on-one, but you know they had done one-on-one basketball before this. Larry Bird wasn't that interested in collaborating, so Larry Bird basically was just a name on the box. But Julius Irving actually spent a day with Eric Hammond and actually spent time going over some of the finer points of his game and providing input. Madden would be very much the same. The most famous moment of this, of course, was the train ride. We talked about this in our other episode. John Madden had an absolute deathly fear of flying. John Madden would not fly. So he's a national broadcaster, which means he's doing football games literally all over the country. And he would not fly to those games. In the early days of his career, he took the train. Later on in his career, he actually bought and decked out a custom bus that he took all over the country, the Madden Express. So in 1984, at some point in 84, Trip Hawkins, Joey Barra, and Robin Antonick get on a train 
with John Madden. He's like going from Minnesota to California or something like that. I forget the exact cities, but it's going to be a two-day train ride to get to his next broadcasting gig, and they spend that time going over his belief in football strategy. And this really influenced the final product. Joey Barra kind of describes it in this way, that John Madden was an offensive lineman as a player before he got hurt. So the foundation of John Madden's philosophy on football strategy was that offensive line and how that offensive line was going to be lined up on the field. Once you know where the offensive line is, then the defensive line kind of takes their cue off of that and lines up. And and he saw a lot of the important strategy in the game and the way those two lines came together facing each other and squared off at the beginning of the play. That was the starting point for him. Then from there, you could move on to strategies and what you're doing with your receivers and all of this other stuff. It's certainly believable that that 11-on-11 story happened in some capacity because aside from obviously he is focused on football as a sport, the fact that he's so clued in to the idea of how the players line up means that he would have been particularly offended if he had been shown something that was not 11-on-11. Well, if you look at it from his standpoint, the math and the strategy changes if you reduce the number of players. If you Mm -hmm. go from 11 to 7 to 5 or 3, the amount of capabilities and complexity of the play goes down, and you don't have some of the strategies that he's used to seeing or the capabilities of the teams to execute a play without that 11 on 11. Exactly. So Madden is all over this game. He's not just on the box. He's not just on the title screen. He's all over the game. He provided a lot of input just in this kind of general strategy session. He also provided his playbooks from his days with the Raiders. He wasn't a coach anymore. No one was running those plays anymore. It's not like that was some kind of super duper trade secret that would (laughs) get him in trouble. Robin Antonick actually converted all of the plays in Madden's Oakland Raiders playbook into plays in the football game that became John Madden football. John Madden football has a bewildering array of plays. It has over 80 offensive plays and over 80 defensive plays built into the game. It's massive because they've got the John Madden thing going. They've got Tripp's love of Stratomatic and football strategy going. They have Robin Antonick's ambition to be a deeply strategic game going. These are people that want a deeply strategic game. So there are over 160 plays between offense and defense in this game. So that's a big aspect of how John Madden ends up in the final product. The other thing that he did is he also introduced Trip to another guy that was very instrumental in the first version of the game named Frank Cooney. Frank Cooney was a beat writer for the San Francisco Examiner. He covered football for the newspaper. Cooney and Madden had grown up together. They were of an age. They had attended local high schools that were just five miles apart. So they knew each other going way back. And they had become friends during Madden's time in Oakland when Cooney was covering the Raiders. Cooney was way out in front of a lot of people in football of recognizing that you could learn a lot about players and how well they were going to do in college by going to the draft combine, which is a big deal today, but was not a big deal back then, and doing a lot of other regular scouting on these players, doing these basic skills kind of get a good sense on who are going to be, uh, you know, the good players. He kind of had a side gig where he would supply scouting reports on college players to NFL teams. He created a board game himself 
that was based on player skill ratings. He was coming up with his own system for rating players. Remember, one of the things that we talked about that was kind of deficient in the early games is they were more based on what happened in the plays than they were based on what the players, what the individual actors on that field were doing. Here's a guy who very early, I mean, this is common now, obviously, across all of sports, but it was not so common in football then. Here's a guy that very early is paying attention to what individual players can do, what kinds of skill sets individual players have taking the time to meticulously scout players and devise some kind of rating system that categorizes players on their various abilities, on their running speed, on their blocking capability, on their passing accuracy, on all of the skills that go into being a successful football player. So Madden introduces Trip to Cooney, and Cooney comes on board the project as a consultant and basically does ratings for all of the players in the game. This is a game that is going to be very strategic based on what's going on with the plays, but it's also going to be affected by what's going on with individual players who are going to be rated in several basic areas. Very similar to stats on a baseball game players. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So if that sounds like a lot on our little 48K Apple II that we've been talking about. But that's just a RAM, Alex. We can just only have a certain amount of things loaded in RAM at a time. I'm just worried about what you can fit on that floppy disk. (laughs) Right. If this sounds like a lot, that's because it is. And it was a nightmare. Joey Ibarra has said, this wasn't a quote he gave to me, but it's a quote that he gave in another article. I think Joey Ibarra summed the whole thing up best with his quote, All my memories are of pain. That is how he summed up his experience on Madden. And he did not make it to the end of the project. He ends up being chewed up and spit out by it. He ends up deciding he has to go do something else. Honestly, I can't even fathom how he even got this thing to work. You have so little RAM. You have so little storage. Even if you're doing Mm -hmm. some sort of paging system where you go, okay, you have the offensive disc. You have the defensive disc. You have the loading disc, you have the play disc, you have the thinking disc, you have the, I don't know what kind of disc. Even if you're doing some sort of change out floppy disks every other screen, even then, I don't see how this is viable. Very difficult, and they spent a lot of time trying to get this to work. This game started development in October 1983. It was released in June 1989. But Nintendo put out a football game in 85. Yeah, 10-yard fight, which was an Irem game, but it wasn't full-on football, and it was an arcade game. It was an action game. This game dragged on and on and on because they couldn't get it to work. At one point, they finally decided that they were going to dump Robin Antonick. They contracted with this little company called Bethesda Softworks that you may have heard of. I may have. Before Bethesda was known as the king of open-world RPGs with the Elder Scrolls series, they came up as a sports company, not because the founder, Chris Weaver, was particularly interested in sports, and in fact, he didn't care one whit about football. He has said that he found uh, John Madden to be one of the most boring, (laughs) meeting John Madden to be one of the most boring experiences he ever had because he had no interest in football. But his programmer that is first prime programmer, Ed Fletcher, was good at this sports stuff. So they had started out in sports games and they had had a very successful product called Gridiron that 
was really one of the first games, because remember, Madden's not out yet, was really one of the first games to accurately depict physically what was going on on the field, having individual player capability and field physics have an impact on what was going on instead of this whole canned play thing that we were talking about before. But it basically, had, it had no graphics. Because again, you can't get this stuff to work if you're having full graphics. There was only one 11-on-11 football game that came out prior to John Madden football, and that was Fourth and Inches on the Commodore 64 that was done by Accolade. It did not sell well. It was a failure, and it was terrible. Because, And we'll put it in the show notes. There's going to be a lot of football games uh, Jeffrey's going to have to watch for the show notes today. We'll put it in the show notes. But it was slow, and it was nasty because he couldn't do 11 on 11. And the Commodore 64 is certainly better than the Apple II, so right. yeah. Exactly. So Gridiron had some success in simulating football, but not with full graphics. Finally, Trip Hawkins, I think, just getting frustrated that they can't get anywhere with this product, which is no fault of Joey Ibarra or Robin Antonick. I mean, what Robin Antonick did to pull off John Madden football is amazing, considering the constraints he was under. It's just, it was a hard project, and it was going and going, and there seemed to be no end to it. Trip finally says, okay, fine, we're going to contract with Bethesda. Bethesda's got this game Gridiron, and it works really well. We're going to basically use their technology to create John Madden football. He signs a deal with Bethesda. That deal basically is that Bethesda would become an affiliated label of Electronic Arts. Uh, You know, we've talked about the affiliated label program before, where basically Electronic Arts isn't the publisher of the product, but they're the distributor of the product. And it allows a small publisher to get a big nationwide distribution that they would not otherwise necessarily be able to get. Bethesda would become an affiliated label of Electronic Arts. Electronic Arts would distribute Gridiron, and on the side, Bethesda then would do the coding for John Madden football. From Chris Weaver's perspective, the point of this was to get Gridiron greater exposure and get Bethesda games greater exposure. Because remember, Electronic Arts is not buying Bethesda. They're not becoming a studio of Electronic Arts. It's all fine and good to do some software programming and get paid to do some programming on John Madden football. But Chris Weaver's ambitions are not just to be a contract house for somebody else's games. He wants to make his own games. The way Chris Weaver saw this deal was Gridiron gets greater national distribution through the power of Electronic Arts. And we get paid to contribute some code to their football game at the same time. So, you know, win-win. We get some money. We get some greater distribution. Trip Hawkins is making John Madden football. Trip Hawkins isn't really all that interested in marketing a competitor to John Madden football. He's got his own football game. From Chris Weaver's perspective, and this is probably true because there are certainly other examples where Electronic Arts has played hardball with their affiliated label program, but from Chris Weaver's perspective, basically, Electronic Arts put no effort into marketing Gridiron. As he saw it, they were basically smothering his product while having them work away at the code on Madden. And he did not see that as what the agreement was. That is not what he wanted out of this arrangement. Finally, he refused to hand the code over that they had been working on at Bethesda. Then there was a lawsuit. The lawsuit settled. A lot of it's confidential because there was a settlement. So I don't know exactly how this all worked out. But let's just say that Bethesda didn't end up creating John Madden football. 
Instead, they went on to bigger and better things, as it turned out. But for a brief period of time, it looked like Bethesda was going to be involved in making the game. But then that went away, and then it was back to Robin Antonick slaving away with Joey Barra and supporting staff over time. Michael Kasaka, one of the early artists uh, at Electronic Arts, did the graphics. There were other programmers and producers that at various times had their hands in it in one way, shape, or form or another. But it was largely Robin Antonick's baby throughout this entire years-long development process. They finally get it to the point where they can ship it. They originally announced that it's coming out in 1988. They don't make that. It gets delayed from the middle of 88 to the end of 88. Then it gets delayed from the end of 88 into 89. And then finally, in June 1989, John Madden Football is released on the Apple II, with ports coming shortly thereafter for the Commodore 64 and the IBM PC as well. If you go to Wikipedia at this exact moment, you will see that the title for the article on John Madden Football is John Madden Football parentheses 1988 video game. Hmm. It did not come out in 1988. So now we're going to give you your second thing to take away from this if you take (laughs) nothing else away from it. If you take nothing else away, remember that it was always 11 on 11, even if at times they had maybe had prototypes with fewer players than that. and. It's not a 1988 football game. It is a 1989 football game. This is beyond the shadow of a doubt. We have contemporaneous computer game magazine articles announcing when it came out. We have Computer Entertainer, which kept track of when games were released. We have them originally showing it as coming in 88. We have them then showing it coming as 1989. We have them then finally reviewing it in the middle of 1989 when it came out. We know for a fact it came out in 1989. I'm just too lazy to fight with the Wikipedia people over it. It is a 1989 game. There are some sources, not just Wikipedia, that say it was 1988. It is not. It was definitely 100%, without a shadow of a doubt, a 1989 game. As you alluded to at the top of the episode, Jeffrey, and as we talked about, of course, in our previous EA Sports episodes, it was a disaster. Because you can't do 11 on 11 on the Apple II, as it turns out. We will, of course, put this game in the show notes. We always put the games in the show notes. For some reason. (laughs) This game is ugly, first of all. Ugly, ugly, ugly graphics. I mean, the Apple II isn't necessarily the most brilliant graphically capable machine to begin with. It's compounded by the fact that you can't be using up too much of your memory with all of this stuff going on on drawing the graphics. It is ugly. And it is slow. I mean, really, really slow. Stutters like crazy when you're playing it. It's not so much as stutter as you just get really, really low frame rate. You know how you used to watch videos back in the 90s, Alex? And you would watch them (laughs) on something before YouTube. I don't know, real player or something. (laughs) And then you go, you know, I really want to watch this funny video. Let me download it for three hours while I go make a sandwich and watch Vaco's Modern Life. (laughs) Oh, look, it is time to watch the video. Oh, look, my five-second video has gone at one frame a second. It's so wonderful. Early webcams were notorious for this. You just have frame, something, frame, something, frame, pause. And don't forget everybody's favorite word, buffering. Oh, yes, buffering. Except we don't get buffering with the Apple II. We just get the resultant 
step by step. I have an example of John Madden playing here. I'm looking at it on YouTube of it playing on the Apple II, and that frame rate of the players moving around is sort of like, okay, yeah, there's some movement here. I can see that going on. It's just like step, pause, step, pause, step, pause. I think something happened. Oh, yes, text showed up. It's pretty brutal, and it's really zoomed in, and it's still that brutal. I mean, you don't see much of the field at once. They tried early on to do a more TV perspective on it, which I assume means a little more zoomed out and kind of a not a side-on view, but more of a side view, kind of a slanted side view that gives you that kind of TV perspective. But they found they couldn't do it because you couldn't see the holes when players are moving around. You couldn't see the, the holes in the line. So they had to kind of go with this, it's kind of overhead, but not quite overhead. It's actually kind of what became the classic football view in the football video games, which is that you're kind of, but not quite really overhead, because you're kind of a little bit to the rear and overhead, so that you get kind of a perspective that you're going to drive down the field. But in the original Madden, it's really zoomed in, so you don't really see much of the field. You have very little idea of what the field looks like. You only get a brief view of the field. So at the start of your play, it does sort of a massive overhead view, like you said. Instead of it being straight up and down like a perpendicular thing, it's almost like you're in the second tier of the stadium looking down at it. Sort of like that angle behind one of the goalposts. You see the big play and it starts playing, then it zooms in to wherever the action is You still have that same angle or perspective of what's going on, but you can actually see the detail more of what the players are actually doing and issue whatever order you're trying to do. It's not great, but it does communicate something. The problem is not so much with the perspective, because as I said, that perspective would become the classic video game football perspective. The problem is more that the perspective cannot be executed perfectly well because that perspective requires a little more view of the field, a little more scrolling capability of hardware to actually be effective. So it's just not that effective in the original John Madden football with the way things are. It's slow. It's clunky. It's releasing to a very different market. In the early 80s, the idea of doing a strategy game, a sports game that led with strategy, is not a very radical concept because so much of the early computer game output on the Apple II, on the early Commodore computers, on the TRS-80, if you want to go there, was very cerebrally based, was very strategically based because in those days, computers were expensive. It tended to be a slightly more affluent, a slightly more educated, a slightly older crowd that owned these personal computers, and they were interested more in strategy games. So that was not a stretch for a game that you were starting to create in 1983. Having the strategy correct and not worrying so much about the action was an okay call for that kind of market, but that's not the 1989 market. By 1989, the Nintendo Entertainment System coming along has completely changed the market. Obviously, the computer game market in the United States is a different market from the console game market, but they still affect each other. This is a very action-based market now. And even before the NES came out, the Commodore 64 started changing the market to a more action-oriented market in the mid-1980s as well, because it had good sprite capability. Part of the reason why the Apple II was not a very action-oriented computer with action-oriented computer games is because 
it didn't do hardware sprites. It, it did bitmaps. You had to do, uh, if you wanted sprites, you had to do them in software. Commodore 64 comes along. It has great hardware sprites and pretty good scrolling. So that kind of influences. And then, of course, the NES comes along, and that just completely takes the market there. So it's all about the action. It's about Bo Jackson running all the way down the field in Tech Mobile. It's not about 81 plays on offense and 81 plays on defense. It's just a different world. And then the other thing, of course, is that the Apple II was eclipsed years ago as the primary computer game machine. It gained that distinction almost by accident because it was the only one of the early computers that had real graphics. The Commodore PED and the TRS-80, the other two uh, famous members of the Trinity, they had character-based graphics. It was all letters, numbers, or basic shapes. I mean, you could have as characters that were arrows or lines or this and that, but you know, it wasn't just letters, numbers, and, and punctuation. But it wasn't much more than that. And the Apple II had a bitmap screen, so you could do actual graphics on it. Because it had that bitmap screen and lesser color capability and all of this, it, it really wasn't well-suited to necessarily being the game's computer. So once the Commodore 64 came along, then it was very rapidly eclipsed. And then, of course, the IBM PC grew in sophistication for game playing, and by 1987 is starting to eclipse the Commodore 64. The Apple is a dead platform at this point. There's no way you should be bringing out a game on the Apple II at this point. And yes, they did port it. It did appear on the Commodore 64 and the IBM PC. They weren't that stupid. Still, it was a game designed with the Apple II as the lead platform. Even as it moves to other platforms, it is in some ways bound by the constraints of making an Apple II game. So it releases at the wrong time in the wrong market on the wrong platform. It's a flop. Why would they even continue making it? It's because this was Trip's baby. They tell the story that around the office it was called Trip's Folly by the end. They were told they should write the darn thing off. Madden did not come cheap. That license was not a cheap license. The financial people were saying, just write this game off, because with all the development costs you've sunk into this, and with the endorsement cost of getting Madden, you are never going to turn a profit on this thing. So just stop. There's a thing called the sunk cost fallacy where you feel like, I put so much effort into this, I put so much money into this, I want to see some sort of return on investment. Sometimes you just can't. You just have to walk away, because it doesn't matter how much more money, effort, time, or whatever, you're not going to reap anything near what you put into it. Exactly. And that's what was looking to be the case here. But trip i mean it's it's not necessarily i mean the, the sunk cost fallacy is real obviously but it's it's not necessarily just a sunk cost issue here because a lot of it really was trip wanted his football game this is the football game trip had always wanted even before there was an electronic arts so he was never going to kill this thing they needed a football game right because by this time they're already starting to put together this conception of a sports line. We're not going to go into the history of EA Sports here. We've done it. We've done it very well. So I encourage you to go to that episode, those episodes, if you want more information on that. They're already getting this conception of a sports line together. They've got the basketball. They've got the baseball. They've got racing games. They have to have the football. They're an American company. Football, by this point in time, is the American sport. Sorry, baseball, my one true love, but football is the American sports pastime. You have to have a football game. 
I think it was a combination of realizing that they need a football game for the sports line and Trip really wants this thing that meant that they just carried on and they finally got it out the door. But, you know, it's just as well that they did because it's only as a result of never being able to recoup their costs on this darn thing that they decided to turn a completely separate project at EA that had nothing to do with John Madden whatsoever into a Madden football game. That's the second half of the story that we're going to be covering here, which is the birth of the completely different game, John Madden Football, on the Sega Genesis. The Sega Genesis, where we want to do all the sports. That's right. So I'm going to give you a third thing, third and final thing. There is an important takeaway from this episode. There will be a quiz. I'll put the quiz in the show notes. The first thing is that it was always meant to be 11-on-11 football. The second thing, the original John Madden football was a 1989 release, and don't believe Wikipedia if it still says that by the time you listen to this episode, because it is a filthy liar. The third thing is that John Madden football on the Sega Genesis was not in any way, shape, or form meant to be a John Madden football game. It was not created as an extension of the John Madden line. It was created with a completely different philosophy from John Madden football. It was created by completely different people from John Madden football. It only became a Madden football game, as we will see, because the dramatic failure of John Madden football almost made it a necessity. So now we have to go back and talk about another person that joined EA in 1983. This is an individual by the name of Richard Hilleman. Richard Hilleman had been a computer operator and programmer, more of an operator, really, and a big video game and arcade game and Apple II game enthusiast. He was based in Las Vegas, Nevada. He was working at a defense facility there as a computer operator. He would fiddle around on the mainframes there, you know, doing his own stuff, as many of these programmers and operators did, and decided that he needed a computer of his own that he could transfer some of these projects to in in case they got wiped off the mainframe because, you know, it wasn't necessarily work stuff. He ended up buying an Apple II. There were two computer shops in the Las Vegas area at the time, or at least two that mattered. He went to one called Century 23. Century 23 became a magnet for the early Las Vegas computer game scene, which there was one. Oddly enough. He met several other people there that would become very influential in the industry. David Gardner, who would go on to a long career at EA and then become a venture capitalist after that. Lewis Castle, who was one of the co-founders of Westwood Studios, which was... Las Vegas people, and several others. So he fell in with this game-playing crowd. There was a big arcade near Century 23 as well. He fell in with this whole crowd and became very into this game stuff. So when David Gardner went off to Electronic Arts, another one of these young, because he was a teenager, another one of these young prodigies, Hilleman wasn't a teenager, but Gardner was. Hilleman ended up following Gardner out to Electronic Arts and joined the company in 1983. He was basically the IT guy when he started. That wasn't the only thing he did, but he was kind of the guy responsible for production. Not in a factory sense, but in a tech sense. 
he was basically a system administrator would be today. I mean, they didn't have a system because it was not online like that. But he was basically a system administrator, an IT guy. He was maintaining the development environment. He was doing the IT work. He did have some programming ability, so he was doing some low-level programming. He was writing some utilities. He was doing the copy protection that they were using. Kind of a jack-of-all-trades on the lower technical end of the company. It turned out that another friend of his, Rick Koenig, was doing a game called Racing Destruction Set, which was a racing game, but it also allowed you to design your own tracks. It was part of this whole EA thing that they had going with the pinball construction set and the adventure construction set. They had a bunch of these. So they had the Racing Destruction Set, little pun on the whole construction thing. They needed tracks for it as part of testing it and everything. So it ended up that he built hundreds of tracks for the game because his friend was working on it and needed the help building the tracks. And it ended up that he actually had a knack for this whole game design thing, it turned out. I mean, he he enjoyed games. He'd been playing games for a long time, but it turned out that he also had a knack for design. So then when Rick was looking to do his next game, Rich kind of suggested doing another racing game. And Rick was like, well, why don't you write up what that looks like? And so he did the design document for that game. Through this manner, Rich started moving over from being on the production side to being on the producer side of things, which is something that early EA was very good about, was if you had talent in an area that was outside your area, that talent was recognized and you were put to work. It turns out he had a talent for being a producer. So he became an associate producer. He worked on a lot of simulation products, racing simulation games, military simulation games, etc., Moved up from associate producer to full producer. I think he was involved in John Madden football at the very end on the Apple II, kind of just getting it out the door. But he wasn't really involved in it from a philosophical or design standpoint. At that point, it was just like, it's chewed through all of these producers. We need someone to just get the darn thing shipped. And he was kind of the guy that just got the darn thing shipped. He didn't really have any input in the design. And kind of graduated to that full-on producer role. You know, at this time, the 16-bit systems were coming out, and we're talking about computer systems like the Amiga, as well as video game systems like the Sega Genesis. It was time to start thinking about what kind of games to put on there, and Rich was of the opinion that they needed to get a football game on those 16-bit systems. That's going to be important, especially since they've got this whole sports thing going on, but that they need something very different from John Madden football. They need something more action-y. There were a couple of touchstones out there already, one of which we've talked about before. We talked about this in the context of EA Sports. It's probably the single most important influential game on the formation of EA Sports, and that's TV sports football. We talked about it from an aesthetic standpoint last time. We talked about how it had this whole conceit about it that you were in the middle of a television broadcast. So there were cheerleaders, there was a halftime show, there were commentators, there was a coin flip. There were all of these little animated cutscenes and vignettes showing all of these aspects of a game outside of the game itself, though, of course, it also modeled the game, too. So we talked about that aesthetically, how that was an influence on the Electronic Arts Sports Network, which became EA Sports. But it was also an influence just in terms of having bright, bold visuals and slightly better action, though it it still runs a little slow because it's hard to do 11-on-11 football even on these early 16-bit systems. So that was one touchstone. And then Data East did a game called ABC Monday Night Football with another San Diego-based developer, incidentally, called Park Place Productions that was founded by Troy Linden and Michael Knox. 
they got together with Park Place and a guy by the name of Scott Orr, who had founded a company called GameStar earlier in the 80s that had focused on sports games. It was really the only computer game company that really, really focused on sports games. They ended up being bought out by Activision. Activision didn't really know what to do with them, kind of ran it into the ground. So Scott Orr kind of left, became kind of a free agent. And then he combined with Park Place to do ABC Monday Night Football. This is a game that focused more on the action. Now, the original Commodore 64 version is kind of slow, too, because, again, it's the Commodore 64. But it really focused on the action, and it focused on intuitive play. It did not have many plays. I think it may have even only had four on offense and four on defense. I mean, it was a very small number of plays. But it focused on easily controllable and easy-to-read action. One of the big things that it did is that it mapped out the receivers. So again, I'm not a huge football person, but my understanding is there were kind of five primary receivers. You had your two wide receivers, left and right. You have your tight end, who stays close and tries to run the ball up the middle. And then you have your halfback and your fullback, which, to my knowledge, my understanding, aren't really that important in the way football is played anymore, but they exist. ABC Monday Night Football had this system in place where each of these five receivers was displayed in the interface, kind of on the bottom of the screen, and you could very easily select with your joystick or whatever which receiver you wanted to hand the ball off to by hovering over the proper receiver on this interface. It made for a game that could be a little more action-packed and a little more intuitive in the way you controlled football action. Rich Hilleman saw these games that focused more on the action and didn't have the depth. Now, Hilleman himself loved depth, too. He came out of simulations. He worked on a lot of simulations at Electronic Arts. But, you know, his philosophy was that you want to have something that captures the depth and feels like all the depth is there while still finding the element of the fun. One example that he often gives is he did an F-16 game, was one of the games that he did at EA, you know, flight simulator, military flight simulator. If you're really firing a missile on an F-16 as a real Air Force pilot, You're going through this whole checklist of procedures, like a dozen procedures before you can actually fire the missile, and you're going through them one by one by one. That's realism. That would be the hyper most realistic thing. But what the public wants is Tom Cruise and Top Gun. They want something that's high-flying action, and even if it's got some realism underpinning it, they don't want to go through 26 procedures to fire the missile. They want to fire the dang missile. They want the missile to behave realistically once you fire it, but they just want to fire it. His idea with football is there's got to be something in the middle. There's got to be something that has some of the strategic depth of John Madden football, but is not so god-awful slow and god-awful a nightmare to control. Got to be something between that and something like ABC Monday Night Football, which is just very few plays, very little strategy, but really intuitive action. So he decides that's what he's going to provide for the next generation, for the 16-bit. He starts a project that is called Electronic Arts Football. That's the name of it. As I said, there is no connection to John Madden at all. Electronic Arts Football. He hires some of the people that worked on these other two games. TV Sports Football was not a Park Place Productions game, but some of the people that worked on TV Sports Football then went to Park Place Productions and were there when they made ABC Monday Night Football. So there's DNA there. So Rich Hilleman brings in Scott Orr, and he brings in Park Place Productions. He has them do his 
more action-y, more arcade-y, but still with some strategic depth football game for 16-bit platforms, Electronic Arts Football. They come up with a great system. It turns out Park Place is busy with other projects, so they put a junior guy on it by the name of Jim Simmons. Troy Linden and Michael Knox themselves do not work directly on Electronic Arts Football. They're supervising it, but they don't program it. They put a guy named Jim Simmons on it who's an audio guy. He had actually done the audio for both TV Sports Football and ABC Monday Night Football, but he had never programmed a game before. So it looks like they're getting the darn B team. As it turns out, Jim Simmons is really good at this stuff. Before he even goes in for the first pitch to show things off to Rich Hilleman at EA, he puts together a demo with a smoothly scrolling through the use of parallax scrolling football field with all of the players, 22 players, running around on it. I'm not a technical guy, so I don't know all the tricks that he used to do this, but basically he used some very clever programming tricks in the way that he updated the screen segment by segment in the memory in order to be able to do this smoothly scrolling football field where you can see off into the horizon. This is the big difference. The perspective of it is not that much different from John Madden's perspective on the Apple II. But the camera is tilted just a little bit more, so you're running into the horizon, and it feels like you're running down this massive field. Because it scrolls smoothly, even though it doesn't scroll fast, it's not a lightning-fast scrolling, but because it's smooth, there's no stuttering, there's none of this hiccup stuff that you found in John Madden football, it feels like you're really moving down that field. It's a whole different effect. It feels better, really, than any other football game before, because even the other football games like TV Sports Football and ABC Monday Night Football, they still had some of that stuttering to them. They didn't have this smooth scroll. This is what made Electronic Arts Football so revolutionary. Jim Simmons is the guy that really made all of this happen. I mean, it's frankly astonishing, because you're talking about 22, 23, maybe even 24 objects having to move around at once. Mm-hmm. You go, well, system should be able to handle that, right? Not necessarily. I mean, think of just the 8-bit NES. If you throw more than eight objects on there, <laughs> right? the NES will start stuttering horribly. There's ways to do that with even things that are launch titles like Super Mario Brothers. Super Mario Brothers mm-hmm. 3 was notorious for this in certain situations. Even the SNES and the Sega Genesis were able to be lagged down if you got too many objects on the screen. Whenever you talk to any kind of speedrunner and they are playing some of these older games, or even modern games, their biggest thing is to get the most things off the screen they can because that gives them that few extra free processing things in order to proceed faster and further. So the fact that you can get smooth video objects moving around and getting 22, 23, 24 of them, that's frankly astonishing even for a 16-bit era system because you think, but yeah, but Jeff, Alex, I remember Contra. That could shoot. I got all these bullets going around. I got explosions going everywhere. I got tons of monsters being shot up and everything. Yeah, pause it at any one time and count how many actual objects are on that screen. How many things are actually doing something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you may have a lot of bullets. That's just one object repeated in a line. 
That's not in, really an independent thing. All the bullets are a single object that's just given that illusion. Sort of like how with the Atari, you had the effect of a laser beam by having the ball object, the one pixel ball object, used really rapidly in one line so that you had a laser effect. But it's really just one object that's just hey, I'm not wiping out where it was. I'm just saying, you're just going off in this weird direction and it's just going to leave this residual thing. Most SNES and Genesis things, you're not getting anywhere near 22 objects on the screen. You're lucky to see half of that. Right. It's really remarkable what he's able to do. So he brings that to the first meeting and they're telling Rich Hillman and everything, you know, what are you going to do? Well, we're going to scroll the screen. It's like, and how's that going to work? And then he says, well, it's going to look like this because he brings it with him and he shows it. And then he shows them how much of the processing power it's using to get this effect. And it is surprisingly little. Again, I don't know all the tricks he used, but it's all down to clever tricks and memory management and how you draw the screen and all of that, just maximizing what he could do on that system. So you've got Jim Simmons nailing the programming. You have Scott Orr continuing to refine the interface that they had before. You know, they figured out pretty quickly. I mean, they started out, it's like, we need something for 16-bit systems. But they figure out pretty quickly that what they need is something for the Sega Genesis, because EA is going to go on that. The Sega Genesis has three buttons, A, B, and C. So they do a variation on the ABC Monday Night Football thing. Now, ABC Monday Night Football had five receivers. For Electronic Arts Football on the Genesis, they decide, well, we've got three buttons, so we'll tie each button to a receiver. You'll have your two wide receivers and your tight end. We won't worry about the halfback and the fullback. They don't matter anyway. Each one will be tied to a receiver. So if you're the quarterback and you're getting ready to throw the ball, it'll just be boom, 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 ABC. You choose which one you want by pressing the button and you do the throw. They also came up with a system of windowing which was, again, kind of taken from football broadcast. So the receivers may be far down the field, depending on the play you're calling, when you do the throw. So they came up with having a separate window open up if you're throwing to a receiver and the receiver's getting ready to catch the ball as a way to allow that action within the action to happen without losing perspective on the field. They come up with all of these great ways to do an action game, so great ways to do the graphics, and... At the same time, they also take a similar approach to rating all of the players. Another person that was very instrumental in this game was an individual by the name of Michael Brook, who became the associate producer on the game. He had actually gotten his start with Electronic Arts as an assistant to Trip Hawkins himself. Then he left the company to do other things, and then he came back. Brook became the associate producer on the game, working with Hilleman. And like Hilleman, he had a deep love of simulations as well. His big idea for the game was that he wanted to have every team in the game to have a different style and a different way of playing. Now, these weren't going to be NFL teams. They didn't have a license or anything. At the start, they figured they would have eight teams. Brooks's idea was, let's have each one of these teams play differently and have different styles. So the way that you would do that is by having a comprehensive rating system for the players. So that's what Brooke brought to the game. Brooke started rating everybody, giving them different speeds, different weights, different abilities across all of these different teams and players. As this went on, it kind of developed naturally 
into this idea of, well, we might as well have eight teams that kind of play like eight real teams. And if they kind of play like eight real teams, they might as well have the colors of those real teams. Not the logos, because that's licensed, but they can have them be in the colors. Over time, as he developed this rating system, it developed into a game where they were modeling real teams, so they didn't actually have any kind of real license. Brooke was the one that took the lead in doing all of that. And that's simple to do. You just have the team be whatever the city they're based out of and just do whatever the color scheme is. So Washington, orange and blue, Denver, blue and white. Yeah, except Washington's not orange and blue. It's like maroon and yellow. Oh, it isn't the thing I'm watching right now. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, they only had the colors they had. <laughs> Very true. Very true. <laughs> but yeah, they, they do a little of that. And a lot of that was Brooke, who was, had another impact. So, you know, Hilleman's driving the whole thing, this balance between action and simulation. You have Orr that just knows action interfaces down cold and is providing a lot of the guidance. You have Simmons, the great programmer that's making this happen. You have Brooke, who's interested in the AI of it all. He had even written a paper when he was getting his MBA on using artificial intelligence in a football game for an artificial intelligence course, and he got a D on the paper because his teacher thought that that was absolute nonsense and not a fitting use of artificial intelligence. (laughs) You know, you have all of these people coming together, each bringing something unique to it. And there are other people involved as well, artists, and uh, Matthew Hubbard does the music, and tons of people. And I'm sure they all had impact in various areas. But, you know, those are kind of the lead areas where some of these people took, and this game's coming together. And then they are told, by the way, you remember how we signed that deal with John Madden? Well, that deal was very expensive, and we're going to have to write off that deal because the John Madden football game on the Apple II just didn't do well, and we're not going to recoup our investment on it. Normally, that wouldn't be such a big problem, except we just went public, and if we're doing a write-down right as we're going public— That is not going to look very good to the shareholders and the analyst community. Could you maybe find it in your hearts to make this a John Madden football game so that we can continue to use the license on this game and apply the profits of this game to the deal and not have to write it all down? Okay, thanks. Also, where were your boss and we're doing this anyway? (laughs) Right. So they're like, okay, that's actually how Electronic Arts football became John Madden football. John Madden was actually not very involved in the original Madden football game on the Genesis. Now, he became very involved as the series progressed. But in the very first version, he was not very involved because they brought him in very late. It was never supposed to be a John Madden game. There was actually a John Madden 2 on computer platforms. That was the sequel to John Madden football on the Apple II. That is not what this is. This was a completely separate arcade game that had the working title of Electronic Arts Football that was converted into John Madden Football. So that's why I said earlier, if you take away nothing else, take away the fact that this is not a Madden game. It's a different team with a different objective, different everything. But at the end of the day, it becomes John Madden Football because they need to recoup the cost of that license. So John Madden Football releases in 1990. They're projecting that it'll do maybe about 200,000 in sales. 
it ends up doubling that. It ends up doing 400,000 in sales. It's a hit because it's a really good, solid, action-y football game on the Sega Genesis. Hilleman and Brooke immediately decide that they want to follow up with a sequel the very next year. There's a lot of stuff that they didn't get to do in the first game that they wanted to do. They can incorporate Madden more in a second game, have him take more of a role. There are people at the company that are skeptical because you didn't back then do sequels back to back to back to back to back like that, even of sports games, because you didn't want to cannibalize sales of the original. You might do a data update disc with new rosters, but you didn't do brand new games. But Trip Hawkins agreed that this was the right way to go. They went with it. Of course, EA Sports gets caught up with all of that, too, and we're off to the races. It doesn't become a phenomenon overnight, but this is the starting point. It's really the Genesis game. The Apple II game is almost a footnote in the history of John Madden football. It's really with this first Genesis game that you get the start of what becomes Madden. They do the year thing, 92, 93, 94. On and on and on. You know, there's a whole interesting story to tell there as well. We won't tell that story today because this episode's run long enough, and we're not going to do this as a two-parter either. It's a story that we may revisit at some point in the future, but I don't think I have enough of a unique or interesting take on the next phase of Madden to comfortably do an episode right now up to the quality level that we're used to in our podcast. At least in honor of John Madden and his passing, here is a look, an in-depth look at how the series was born and some of the hardships that were faced in getting this product to market and ultimately launching what would become a multi-billion dollar franchise. It's kind of funny that the game that he had his hand in, even though it was a good from a simulation standpoint, was a financial failure. And the game that people rethought the entire engine thing and went, okay, let's rethink this thing for 16-bit and get some nice good scrolling going on. Let's get some good football playing going on. That becomes the basis for what launched an entire franchise as opposed to what the engine and design philosophy of the original Apple II version was. The only thing they share is the name. And the only reason they share that name is at the 11th hour, Electronic Arts was like, we got to use the name so that we don't have to write all of this off as we're going public. That's the only thing they share. Rich Hilleman, Scott Orr, Michael Brook, some of the other people that come in after that. I mean, there are many. I mean, they're only involved in kind of the first few. But it's these people that drive forward what becomes Madden rather than Robin Antonick or Joey Barra or those people. But Madden is the connecting thread because Madden did get very involved. I will say one thing about the later games. I said Michael Brook did the ratings in the first game. Well, Madden didn't do the ratings at first. There was no time. And then one of the stories he likes to tell is there was, I think, a Philadelphia Eagle player that came up to him and was like, why the heck do I have this rating? That's ridiculous. Madden had no idea what he was talking about because Madden wasn't involved heavily with this game. His name was just on it. Now, there were not real players in John Madden football, but it was obvious who the players were based on. They didn't have the license. For instance, the San Francisco 49ers quarterback was Joe Idaho in John Madden football. I think we know who Joe Idaho is meant to be. Hmm. (laughs) So, you know, this player kind of figured out which one was supposed to be him, and he was mad at Madden. So after that encounter, this is how Madden told the story. Madden was like, from now on, I'm doing the ratings. And in the early games, he did. Later on, not so much. But he became very involved. He really is, even on the Genesis ones, more than just a face on the box. He is the only thing that these two games share. Everything else from the original John Madden football is kind of a part. 
There you go. That's the establishment of the franchise. (laughs) One that lives on to the present day, taking whoever is on the box art and doing something horrible to them every year. (laughs) So, as long as we're not on the box art, how about we find something else to be cursed about? Like what we talk about in our next episode. Well, we've been spending some time in the West recently, I think it's fair to say. I think it's time we uh, went back in a more easterly direction again. We were just there not that long ago with Nintendo. But that was not a video game story. That was a toy story. That was a cement story. It's been a while since we've done a good eastern video game story. Another thing that has certainly been consuming a lot of my time recently is Final Fantasy. Specifically Final Fantasy XIV. But we're not doing fourteen. 14 has a fascinating story of death and rebirth, but it's too new. We need more insight. However, this would seem to be a good time, with 14 doing so well and just releasing its latest big expansion, with Final Fantasy VII enjoying its 25th anniversary this year, etc., etc. This seemed like a good time to maybe go back to where it all began. Wait a second here. You said Final Fantasy VII is 25 years old? Yes. I remember playing that in high school. Yes. So this means high school was... 30 years ago? 40 years ago? I don't know. I'm old. Get off my lawn. 25, at least. This seemed like a good opportunity to go back to where it all began and kind of do a deep dive into the very first Final Fantasy game. We've done some stuff on the history of Square as part of the origin of Japanese RPGs, but taking a specific deep dive into the creation of the very first Final Fantasy, which launched this entire phenomenon. I remember us talking about this a bit before, where we went into the history of Enix and Square way back in the early years of the podcast. Mm -hmm, We did. Uh, And of course, Final Fantasy came up in that, but talking about really dialing in on the first game specifically and how that all came about, and maybe all the NES games, we'll see how it goes. But Since we talked about Square and Enix back then, I've acquired a lot more sources, especially by machine translating interviews with Japanese developers. I have a lot more information on the people behind the original Final Fantasy, not just Hironobu Sakaguchi, but many of the others as well. There's enough information there to tell a good story that hasn't really been told all that coherently in the West. And we like our deep dives and bringing new material to the table. So let's go on a Final Fantasy next time around. Final Fantasy, Dungeons and Dragons, a game rife with bugs. Just don't play a thief. <laughs> we will see you next time in They Create World, the Final Fantasy Edition. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. 
used under the Creative Commons Attribution License. 